Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's external exam. We have been talking about a couple cases in the news over the past couple of weeks about different things that have been happening in funeral homes. So I thought it would be perfect to talk to someone that is in the funeral industry. So welcome, Carrie Northey. Hi. You. Hello. Carrie is a licensed funeral director and embalmer, and she is best known for her YouTube channel, which is called Carrie the Mortician. So everybody probably knows her from that. And so I guess my first question is for you is that what exactly is a mortician? Because people ask me all the time or say that I'm a mortician. And I think a lot of people think just because you work with dead people, you're a mortician. So what exactly is a mortician. Yeah, well, and it's it's a term that means different things to different people. I think over time it has transformed what it was, kind of like a mortuary and funeral home are essentially the same, a little different. Typically, a mortician is someone who is caring for the dead at the funeral home. So someone just meeting families wouldn't traditionally be called a mortician, but some people do call themselves that. I think it's a little more sensationalistic of a word. Um, I chose it for my, you know, carry the mortician because it was shorter than carry the mortician slash embalmer, so to speak. Um, in Michigan, it's one license. Some states, it's not. Some states, you can be just a funeral director or just an embalmer or can choose to be both. So it really is more for a person caring for the dead. But some people just like having the title of mortician, even though they're not caring for the dead specifically. So. And people always think I cut open bodies and do the autopsies. So it's just a misconception of, you know, the general public who does what when it comes to the deceased, I think, with some of that, too. So I think that's funny you get those questions as well. Yeah, we. Pro I was looking at a couple of your videos and I'm like, we definitely get a lot of the same questions. Yes. So it's, it's yeah. like real. it's kind of cool, though. All right. So you're about the same age as me. And when I was figuring out how to do pathology, I did, there was no such thing as the internet. And, and right. like I kind of had like a really cool path of how I figured it out on my own kind of thing. So how did you become aware of the funeral industry? When I was 16, I needed a job and my mom worked at a funeral home at the time as an aftercare coordinator. So she'd work with the families through kind of the funeral phase and then after she would help guide them to support groups. She would help them clean out closets if they needed help in terms of like getting rid of people's clothing or whatever they needed support doing. She was that person. And so she said, hey, do you want to work at the funeral home? Sure. Sounds great. That was the time of pagers. And <laughs> I was in a small town. So for the small town funeral director to be able to go to his kids' sporting events or just have life away from the funeral home for a few hours during the day someone would babysit the funeral home essentially and answer the phone. And so they had somebody at the funeral home till nine o'clock every night from nine to nine Saturday, nine to nine Sunday as well, just to give the funeral director a little reprieve from having to answer the phones. And so that's what I did. I vacuumed a lot, set up chairs, typed on a typewriter, a whole lot of stuff because that was all the documents had to be hand typed and greeted people at visitations, set up flowers and General curiosity, I think, grew during those first few years. I never saw it 
I never was uncomfortable being there, but I never had a great interest in it. And when I went off to college to get my psychology degree, my, I was like, what am I going to do with this? I have no idea. First, I wanted to be an epidemiologist, way too many numbers, all statistics. I didn't know that. Thought I was going to be, you know, like the movie Outbreak where I'm wearing a- Yes, like the hot suit. zone book. Right. Why isn't that? There's not hot zones all the time. That I <laughs> to. So it wasn't quite as exciting as I thought. And so I was like, I don't want to go to school for another 12 years to be a forensic psychologist, which would have been amazing. So my mom goes, what about- being a funeral director. And I tried it. It was it for me. And then I went off to mortuary um, college after I got my psych degree. That Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions for you, because a lot of times people say to me, like, were you really interested in death when you were a kid? And I'm, I'm like, no, I not. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and now I have two little I have three kids all together, but two little ones, one's nine and ten. And I always I can't help but think about their different personalities and think like, what are they going to do when they get older? I'm really curious. So did you have any characteristics when you were a kid that you could think like maybe makes you a good funeral director now? I don't think just general interest in human and personality and psychology of, of interactions of people. I think that's always interested me. I've always been interested by kind of serial killer mind, by um, why people choose certain things, by different segments of the population. When you're a funeral director, you work with everybody at some point because everybody dies. And so you're working with every religion, every subculture section of society, which keeps it kind of entertaining from our side in terms of like, learning about new things and and getting to interact with so many different people. But I don't know that I had a personality. I wasn't interested in death, but I was always comfortable at it. My, my first funeral was when I was three, that there's a glimmer of any recollection. It was my grandpa. And I remember walking in or being carried. I was carried into the room and I just remember being there and uh, kind of watching people cry. And then I remember funerals over the years and just being comfortable and being the one to like go up to my cousins when they were little and saying, it's okay, like let's walk up there. And that was just kind of my nature. I never would have recognized that as something unless I look back. Once I was in mortuary college, um, my mom's like, well, do you want these newspaper clippings when your grandpa was a funeral director? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I just never realized, I never knew my grandpa was the one that had died when I was three. And when he was young, like in his twenties or so, he had been a funeral director. And that's so crazy. It's in my blood, but it's not, it's not something I grew up knowing, grew up knowing it was part of our family or anything. And my mom has this stained glass window that says Rockstro, which was their last name at the time and their house number, which hung in the window in Minnesota at the funeral home because it was just a small home funeral home. And we uh, Google earthed it last year on Christmas. We're, I think it was Christmas. We we're hanging out with my brother, sister, and I, and we're looking it up, trying to find where this home now is and wanting to go drive by it next time we go to Minnesota and all this. But it was not part of our, our knowledge growing up at all that that was our history. Um, it wasn't like, oh, do you want to go down the family path of being a funeral director at all? It just was kind of there. But I am very much my mom. Her name's Winnie. And 
at work, everybody called me Mini Winnie. We are we gravitate towards the same types of families. We both not enjoy, but are comfortable serving children, families, and baby families. And that was really her specialty. And so I'd like to think it's kind of in my DNA, but you know, it's it's hard to know. I think it's just yeah. Kinda- that that's like a really cool story about your grandpa, though. Yeah. I also like how you said how you get to meet all different sorts of people and stuff, because I think a lot of times people think when you work with dead people, it's it's a very quiet, sad, lonely job because obviously a dead person isn't talking back to you. Right. But it's cool that you that you look at it from the perspective of getting to meet people from that death. Yeah. You know, we we deal with the, the deceased, but more of what we actually do is working with the families if we do kind of I say front and back of the house, kind of, I guess that's restaurant talk, but, you know, we're working in the front with meeting families and running the funerals and doing all of the phone calls and everything. And then there is the backside of getting the deceased ready and getting them to the crematory or ready for burial, whatever that may be. Some people do compartmentalize and they do one or the other. Smaller town, you're going to usually do both. And so a large part of what we do is the interpersonal and making relationships. It's not just dealing with the dead, which I think people think funeral directors or embalmers are just literally like touching dead people all day long, which is just not the case. (laughs) Um, Unless you're like a high volume trade embalmer and then yeah, that's your whole day. But that's not my whole day. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I I don't think I could, I could definitely work in the back and embalm all day, but I I don't want to talk to families like that. (laughs) I just think that's where I would draw the line. I I had to talk to families a lot for d- doing autopsies and stuff just to get permissions or whatever, but yeah. it was never like a face-to-face seeing someone crying, and um, I'm not sure that I could get down. <laughs> so it's good that there's people like you in the world because you- you're definitely needed. Well, and it's never always just crying. Like the- I had an arrangement last week, and we laughed so much while we were meeting you know, it's not like there's a lack of sadness. It's just that things aren't sometimes just in their place. You know, like mom had been so sick dying that they were, it was almost a bit of a relief that she was out of her pain. Sure, they were sad, but them telling me stories about her and, you know, picking on each other and just, it was a very nice just feeling meeting with them and getting to know them and their family and who had died and everything. And that's what I love is when you walk out and you have this just good, it's the warm fuzzies. I say you get in the business for the warm and fuzzies a lot because you want to help and you want to have those good view moments or you want to just have those moments or at the end where they're like, thank you so much. That was how we wanted it. Or that was great. Or, you know, whatever it is, it just gives you the warm fuzzies. Yeah, that's cool because I think people are at their like one of the lowest points in their life if they lose a loved one, like husband, wife, child, or something. And it's great that you can that you can be there for them because I I feel like sometimes when when someone dies, people just want to cry to anybody that listens or any or just talk to anybody who will listen because it's just such a low feeling. You did you mentioned mortuary school, so you have to. Is it the same for for your profession in every state or a very state to state? Like what what is the if we're talking if someone's listening right now that wants to be a funeral director, what what do they have to do? So that's one of the big frustrations is every state has their own laws surrounding mortuary science. 
And so Michigan, it's one license. You can't be a funeral director without being a licensed embalmer at the same time. But let's say you go to Ohio, you can be just a funeral director. You don't have to go to mortuary school for that. You just have to have some general study classes and then work in the funeral home for a set period of time and then take a test to get your license. Where if you go to mortuary school, you have all your prerequisite classes, you have your mortuary school program, you graduate from that, you have your national boards you have to take, you take tests in sciences and arts. So it's an interesting vocation that you have to be equally balanced in science and arts. And we as humans were not meant to be strong suited in both. We're right-brained or left-brained, not both. So it is interesting that you have to be able to pass in both. Um, and then you do an apprenticeship and then you take your state boards and get your license. So over kind of all encompassing, it's about three to four years, depending on how fast you go through mortuary school and what program you do. And then you find a job. You may find a job where you do both. You may find one where you are only doing one area. Every state's a little different. The only state currently you don't have to have any is Colorado, where kind of wild, wild west. Anybody can go, I want to be an embalmer and open a funeral home and embalm people. Wow, no, that's interesting. No schooling required. There are many licensed funeral directors and embalmers through accredited schools, but there are also those who are not licensed in any way to do that, um, which is wild. But that'll be changing at, uh, soon. So there's uh, already in the works to get that all changed because they've had yeah, a lot it's, of people in Colorado. It, it sound, yeah, exactly. I think maybe you guys could do something similar to like we have an association, which is the AAPA, and then we're under the ASCP, which is American Society for Clinical Pathology. But it's kind of like the same countrywide as far as what our education needs to be in our certification. There are some states where like New York requires an additional license, but every single like if I go to work at California right now or Alaska, it's the same they expect the same education from all of us and we're only allowed to work in the hospital with that particular education. Yeah, it's it would just, be it would be wonderful if that was the case. Even some of the other nuances of um, the embalming and the the wait time before cremation, like all these other little things, who can sign for your cremation? It's different in every state. So for me to know what is legal in Texas, I would have to consult with someone in Texas on what their state laws were to even be able to give any advice or to guide a family because not a clue. And since it's different than Michigan, which is not logical <laughs> at all. Yeah. So, yeah. It seems, it seems crazy. So do you, do you think that once you go, like, ha are there, are there an, a pretty good number of these programs around the country where people could go or only a few schools offer it? No, there's there's quite a few, and there's now a lot of online programs now as well, and that works for the newer face of the business. It used to be where it was multi-generational families that were going to get licensed to go back to their family business. It is now predominantly first-generation funeral directors. It is 70 to 80% female now, so we've got working moms, we've got second career folks who are trying to transition from one career to another can't just 
not work while you're doing that. So they're trying to balance an online part-time schooling with working with a family, with children, with all of these other factors where before, like I was 22 and single and going off to college to get my mortuary science license. And so it's very, very different faces of funeral directing now than I think it used to be. Yeah, that that's cool that you're saying that it's 70 percent female. I feel like our in PA, especially like my entire. Well, there was 10 of us in our class and nine of us were female. That's awesome. So it, it, it's it's just kind of a difference because all of the older PAs that were our mentors are men. And now it's like the younger ones were are women. It's just like it's really interesting. Yeah. So what once you got done mortuary school. Do you re- like I remember the first time uh, I saw an autopsy and thought like I don't know how I'm ever going to be able to do that by myself it just seems so intense and I don't know if I'm going to do it right and then I remember the first time I did it by myself so do you remember the very first case that you that you embalmed by yourself Oh I don't think I've ever had anybody ask me that which is amazing I feel like I've had every question at this point um I don't. I don't remember the first one by myself. It would have been probably when I was an apprentice and um, with my sponsor being out, you know, doing office work. I remember my first embalming I saw in whole and was shocked because I would always I always knew the guys were going in there to do stuff, but I didn't <laughs> know fully what they did, which is amazing. And I remember when the pathologists used to come to the funeral homes to do the autopsies there. And I always remember them talking about what a mess it was after they'd leave from doing their thing. I was like, but what does it really? So, you know, the visions of what you envision is obviously never what it is bad as it truly is. So once I finally got to see everything, I was like, oh, that happens, that happens. So it was, you know, surprising. I remember my first autopsy embalming it took a very long time. I had to leave the room and sit for a little bit to go back in. And it wasn't the visual. It was the smells. Being exposed to that much blood is an overwhelming smell. Um, it just really is to what our senses are, I think. And so I had to step out and came back in. But I don't remember my first like solo run embalming, um, which is wild. It makes me sad. I want to remember. <laughs> I remember my first... In our death certificate I signed, I could tell you the person's address. Like I remember everything about that, but I couldn't tell you my first involvement. That's wild. It's it's like interesting how our mind works with those types what of things. What we remember. Yeah. Yeah, what exactly. Sticks. What sticks. So outside, like, so you do this kind of rather gruesome, well, sometimes gruesome job and you, and you do deal with dead people on a day-to-day basis, but what are some... Like, what's your life look like when you go home and and yeah. you're you're an, a a regular person? What 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 are you doing? Because I think a lot of times there's this misconception that that we're doing like seances outside of work and we just <laughs> think about death work. all the time. You know, get out my casket and polish it. No, <laughs> I'm 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 running my kids to activities. I'm making dinner and going to the grocery store. Store and spending time with my boyfriend. I'm. You know, just every normal thing. I, outside of just being a funeral director, have the social media. So I'm editing videos. I'm doing that. I teach for a mortuary school. So I'm getting my lessons together. I'm, you know, grading papers. Um, So it's just basic, boring stuff. I always, I don't, I, I get confused with the excitement of it sometimes 
but I can see where when you're not in it, it's exciting. Yeah, exactly. But to me, it's just another every day. So like people will say, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen? And I'm like, but weird is just perception. I've seen, once you see so many things so many times, it's not weird anymore. It's just (laughs) what you see where to someone else, if they were to see it for the first time, they'd be like, whoa. So it's hard for me to get out of the 30 years in the business mindset to think of somebody not ever having walked into a funeral home without having a loss or viewing a dead body for the first time or whatever that mindset is. I can't even connect with it. So yeah, I I do all basic, normal stuff, you know, go to a movie with my man and his son. And I'm trying to think like, what did we do last week? I watched football and because the Lions are still playing and, uh, you know, I'm not a Lions fan per se, but it's a Michigan cool thing. Uh, so yeah, just <laughs> boring, boring stuff. I don't know. It's nothing like it's but- super exciting. I think it. I think that this is important to talk about because I have so many women, especially that are moms, and they they say like, I want to go back to school, but I don't think I could do it. And I think like all like women like you, me, like we we do this job, and then we cook dinner for our families every night, and take care of our kids, and do the normal, put them to bed, read them a book. So it's it's good to show women like, yeah, you could do it all. You could have a good job, and you could still yeah. be a mom. You can, you know, the dropout, like when I was in mortuary school, the dropout rate at that point was, so we started 60 some kids and we graduated 40. So you lose quite a few when you're going through the program at mortuary school. And then they said, from those of you that graduate, only one in three women after three years will still be in the business. Either they don't finish an apprenticeship, they don't get licensed, or they just don't want to be in the business because they start a family and they move on. It's very true. If you look at relationships, typically, if it's a man-woman relationship, the man continues his job and the woman steps back sometimes to take care of family and to take care of things and focuses her role more around the family than the man does. Not man bashing at all. It's just how it is. And so it's being a funeral director, you're on call, you're working evenings, weekends, doesn't always function for family life. And so it often changes. But there are so many people who do this 40, 50 years old, they just start into the business because they've always wanted to. They went into nursing or cosmetology. Those are two main ones that transition (laughs) over hospice nurses and things. And they transition over and it's, you know, they've got prerequisites that already transfer. They just have to do some core classes and then do an apprenticeship and then they're licensed. So it's not this arduous get in for four more years of college, then do, you know, whatever. But there's also a lot of roles within a funeral home that you don't have to go off to another degree, you know, to get another degree. You can work at the funeral home without being licensed to do a lot of the areas, not the body work, but a lot of the other areas you can do. So it just depends what the person's role is, but there can be a balance. Work-life balance is about your employer, not about the career. I firmly believe because you can work at a funeral home, have a horrendous schedule that allows you no work-life balance. That's not a great place. It's not the business. It's the place where you can work for a funeral home that doesn't have you go out at night, that doesn't have you work calling hours in the evening. You can have a great work-life balance 
and it works good, but it's about the location you're working for. Yeah, that's good advice because sometimes if people are in certain relationships and they have a partner that that has like a different kind of work schedule, then that might work for them. Right. But if you're like a single mom, that wouldn't work for you. So it's it, it is important to to know that you can switch different places and just a different schedule might work right. for you. Right. So you so you're working as a funeral director for all of these years, and then you decided to start this this YouTube <laughs> channel and like social media. What 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 made you decide to start that? So it was just very random with no intention of it being what it is. I was, I had left one funeral home and was kind of deciding what was I going to do next? Because it's a lot of small towns around here and funeral homes. I was like, I don't know who I would actually want to work for. Do I go back to being freelance? Because I had done that when I had no kids. I wasn't married where I would go move into the funeral home while the small town funeral director and their family went on vacation. They needed somebody to run the place. So I would go just move into the funeral home, into the residence for a weekend or a week and cover and then come home. And I was like, do I do that again? I've got kids now. It doesn't really like, what do I do? And my husband at the time said, why he had, he was doing some work with some YouTube people. And he said, why don't you record some videos on Facebook? Ask our friends and family what they want to know about your job as a funeral director. See what questions you get. And I was like, all right. So I got about 15 questions. And he's like, why don't you just do a Facebook Live for each of them? He goes, see what happens. So I did my Facebook Lives, was terrified. Like the first time you go live and you know that anybody could be just watching and you see that little eyeball up in the corner going, the number (laughs) going up and down, which is not real time. And it's terrifying to see that number go up. And then when it goes down, you're like, why did they leave me? Yeah. Like, what am I saying? That's so horrible. (laughs) Emotional. It's you. It is hard when you're starting it. But so I I did these 15 live videos, had them on my Facebook, and then I had some requests. Um that people were like, hey, I want to show this video to my mom. I think she needs this information. And I was like, all right, I don't want to just un or make my Facebook public. And that's when my husband said, hey, why don't you put these on YouTube? Then people can just watch them. And I was like, well, that's weird. So then I figure out the whole thing and I post them all at once. And all of a sudden I had like 10 subscribers. And I was like, what? And then 100. And I- <laughs> who are these hundred people and where did they find me? And oh my gosh, they're posting comments and they're asking questions. So then I would respond to their question with a video. And so I figured, well, well, after a couple months, everything will be answered. There's only so much. I have lists. I mean, I'm in my seventh year, 900 videos. I have lists upon lists of videos that people keep requesting. And what's interesting, I mean, you can do it in take, let's say, what is embalming? And you can do one video about that. Then you can do a short video, a long video. You can break down every step of it, every instrument we use during it, every chemical we use. So it's like every little topic I thought would be just one video, I can break it into 50 more videos and people will watch You know what they like, if they like the short, if they like the long, if they like the visual. And it just keeps snowballing. And then I started that's crazy. Last month, no, November, I thought, you know, I'm going to start doing shorts, short videos. I'm going to do one minute videos every day of the month of November. Well, I started doing that. And then Instagram kind of like, the numbers just went up. And I was like, 
what is going on? And that's the only thing I did different. And I thought, what is going on? So it's social media, such a wacky world of algorithms that change constantly. There's a lot of evil people. There's a lot of bad comments. There's a lot of things that come at you. And it doesn't get emotional some days. I'm sure you see it too, where people just sling. And that in the beginning was one of the hardest things to grasp, that it wasn't even about what I was posting. It was just people attacking me as a person in front of them with no validity. That was hard. And people in the industry talking about me when they don't know me, that's hard. Um, But trying to get over some of those hills and focus on consumers that are sending me amazing letters, students that are telling me they're in more choice school because they've watched my videos and wanted to be a funeral director. You know, these reasons that people have gravitated this positive into their own life from watching my videos, which is mind blowing, but it keeps you doing what you're doing. And, you know, people find entertainment and knowledge and I become a better funeral director from everything I research and the people I meet. So I love it. It's just, it's grown in such a good organic way. I've always said I never got sensational. I never went after clickbait. I never went, I don't show bodies ever that, you know, I'm caring for. I don't even show cremated remains that I have cared for because I I just wanted that hard, fast line and not to go even into that realm and disrespect somebody in that way. So I tried to stay on the up and up and be pretty good along the way with what I've done, which is, you know, there's a lot of people that don't and gives everybody else a bad name. But what do you do? I guess just keep being positive and throwing positive is what I try to do. Yeah, it's it's hard because like like you said, it's trust me, I deal with it all the time. It's trolls and the people saying this oh, yeah. and people saying that and. My my husband would always give me good advice. Like number one was just don't like don't respond to these people because people would leave comments and I'd be like, what fucker? Like <laughs> I, I would like you know you yell at them and then he's like, you're fighting with a stranger that like just stop. He's like, if you if they piss you off that bad, just quietly go and block them. That's it. Yeah. And I started doing that a couple years ago and I was like, it's all it's awesome. Because it's just like you can. Ju- how about you just go away right now? I'm not going to give you what you want, kind of thing. Yeah. And um, he also told me that I was focusing too much on the negative. He's like, you have a hundred people day telling you that they stop smoking because of you, and they're doing this job and they're going to college, and you're worried about one person that's like saying something negative about you. Just yeah. you got to avoid that noise, kind of. And but when you're in the moment, it's it's hard to just. Like, you know that that's what you should do, but mm-hmm. it, it's hard when, when anybody says something negative to you, right? Like, you're well, and I a human. For like, I want everybody to be pleased. I want everybody happy. And so if one little person is not, it just it drives me crazy. So then I'm going to focus my energy trying to make them. But I learned, I'll never forget, we drove from where we live in Michigan to Chicago for a wedding and or an event. I can't remember why we were there. And I just remember the whole time I went back and forth with one person. I was, I don't even think I was at a thousand subscribers at that point. And I realized this one person is sitting at their house goading me, just trying to have someone to interact with. 
And I realized that there are just people who are sad, who use the internet as an outlet to connect with people. And the only way they can get response is by throwing negative. So someone will come back at them. And so they can continue interacting with someone, but they choose to do it in a negative way. So I did. I have responded to all my comments for as long as I could. And this last year, it just got too much to respond to every single comment. But I would always, even to the evil ones, respond with, thank you. Thanks for your opinion. Have the day you deserve. Thank you. Just something. Because I was, of course, I was, you know, wanted to be steadfast about every comment. But I felt it unless they got really aggressive or you know, stalkery or something. I mean, I've had to call the FBI a couple of times for some things. I've had to call local police for some things, you know, just people requesting photos of specific things or um, telling me they were going to do things, telling me they want to, are going to be killing themselves, just different, you know, stalking me in very insane ways, just different stuff. And it's like, it kind of comes with the territory in a way, but yet, Nobody preps you for any of that part of being on social media in any kind of a presence. It's it's kind of scary and but you and you navigate it the best you can, but it does get a little worrisome sometimes. Yeah, that that should actually be like a class that they give it cuz it's yes. the thing is is that everyone I started a social media I don't even know why my husband said it was the same thing. He was like, why don't you just post your stuff on on Instagram? I never thought that like today I would be sitting here with all these followers. I didn't intentionally like go out to do that. Yeah. But there needs to be everyone should be trained in social media as far as like how much information you're putting out there, what pictures you're posting like. And, and my husband's a firefighter, but he also is go was going to school for like homeland security stuff and terrorism stuff. And he just knows like all this different shady stuff that people do to try to get your information to find out where you live and 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 all this stuff. And it's funny that you mentioned the FBI because we had to call the FBI before too. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> that that just must be a thing that happens when you have a lot of followers because there's always going to be some crazy person that pushes it over the limit. Well, that's my sister-in-law works for the FBI and I called her one day and I said, hey, just a thought. What if there was something within the FBI you put together, some kind of just a safety training? Hey, here it is. You can watch it. Hey, here it is. Here's some tips for people that are in social media having difficulties just to help protect themselves. I'm like, there's got to be something that you could do as some authority company, you know, that the FBI is and that they would put something together. She's like, I'll throw it at some people and see what they say. Of course, nothing came of it. But I'm like, there's just got to be something. I think there's with how our it's weird because in my mortuary school class, we just had we finished about two hours ago. We discussed this today. The people going after, you know, elderly for money, the AI, you know, creating your voice to trick your somebody's parents thinking that their kid is calling them, sending them money trying to get like the new scam with funeral homes is calling, looking at obituaries, very quickly calling the widow or widower of the deceased and saying, this is Smith Funeral Home. We're calling to take your payment over the phone because you haven't made it yet. You know, throwing out that phishing line and getting credit card numbers from several people by doing that. And it's just like, what? Like, what? There's no limit to what people do 
in that area. And it's just terrifying um, with that. Yeah. And you think like, I think about these people, like you were saying, that lady that you were fighting with all day. You're like, if these people put this much energy into their own life and their own career, they'd be really successful because they have so much passion for for being a troll or for being a criminal. You could put just you just need to like re-gear that energy into something positive. That's I don't understand people that go down that path and are just like, okay, I'm dead set that I'm going to just keep doing you know, butthole things and I'm going to just be okay with it. And it's like, you could, you could take a turn, whatever. I listen to morbid podcast and they'll be like, they were on a good path. And then they (laughs) veered right or veered left. And it's like, but they didn't need to. And what they did, you know, kind of thing. And I always laugh because I'm like, oh my God, that's so true. So true. So uh, I saw that you had a video. So Overall, it seems like you think that you have a, a pretty good experience um, being like in the public like this and stuff. I saw you had a YouTube that you were censored for some uh, COVID conversation you were trying yeah. to have. Is And that video looked like it was a, like a year old already. So have you had any more issues with that? No, we just discussed it the one time. And our audio from it... Um, Ryan and Brian from Undertaking the Podcast, who have a podcast, rolled out the audio on their podcast because there was no censorship there. And what was wild is what we were discussing, they put it down because they said we were giving medical advice, which we 100% were not. We were just commenting on some things that a lot of funeral directors had been commenting on, and we're just giving another perspective. And so they shut it down. And what was frustrating was that the very next day, somebody else posted a video about the same thing, talking on it in a different light. But because they were had doctor in front of their name, it was allowed. And so it's frustrating that I'm. we are talking about something from a funeral director professional vantage point. And it's not allowed. But a doctor talking about what is happening with bodies that we are seeing in a funeral home is allowed when it just didn't make sense. And especially like with COVID stuff, you know, we were told so many times during COVID, you don't have to worry about COVID. Well, COVID was found active on bodies up to like 90 days had been tested. Like they, the bodies were still contagious when we were getting them during COVID. Yeah. But we were being told by nurses, doctors, eh, it's no big deal. And we're like, how is it a big deal for you, but not for the funeral professionals? Like these bodies are still contagious. We can still catch it. Like, what are we not getting? But so, yeah, we did. We got censored. I think my ban gets lifted at the end of January because I took a little, I watched some videos or took a class YouTube gave and yay, I get to get my ban released on me. <laughs> oh my God. It's that, just it really weird. pisses me off to hear this actually because I, and that doctor that made the video about the same thing you were talking about, probably I would say maybe d- hasn't even seen one dead body or clot actually in front of their face but the fact that they have doctor it i i can't stand that because i've always been like a tech or an assistant and never the doctor and i'm like i've seen more shit than you've seen and right. don't don't act like just because you're an md that you're the be all end all of of knowledge right. and unfortunately like i barely talk i talked about covid in the very beginning before it there was even lockdowns just oh i heard there's this virus going on kind of thing and i <laughs> stayed away from it because i don't i don't want to lose my account and i'm scared to death to say anything to be honest with you 
because I I don't want I don't want to get my stuff blocked any more than it already does for being too graphic or whatever. But um, I I don't like that that people have to stay away from talking about it because clearly it was like life was normal and then this huge medical thing happened. But it 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 goes across all spans from hospitals to autopsies okay. to funeral and. At things have changed what you see and maybe they haven't or they have I don't know but like I don't know why you can't just say it out loud like you can't just say oh things look a little different now than they did before well it's like these are our experiences we've seen them we we're talking about things that we are physically in the presence of or are seeing we're not you know completely giving a hypothesis about all of it but we're just adding information and to me like there are some facts that are stated, you know, things that are on death certificates that have happened. Fact. Deceased we've cared for. Fact. You know, different causes of death. Fact. It's not that we're saying, oh, this is the big end thing, but we're just talking. And so, yeah, I've, I have I don't ever use the V word or the C word. <laughs> right. I don't want to be chastised for saying something that I'm not. I'm not even trying to say. I'm just making a statement or just having a conversation about it. And when you have, what did we have? Five embalmers in that conversation that one of them does one of the highest volumes of trade calls I know anybody to do. They're from all different places in the country, all different everything. And we were just saying, yeah, none of us have seen or experienced what we are hearing on all these documentaries and stuff. But then because we say it, we were chastised by, you know, a few other people. And it became this whole inner business, ugh, ugly, ugly talk. And it it's just not necessary at all. Um, but this business, the funeral director business, is that older generation, kind of like you have going, that older generation of men, younger generation of women. There's this weird battle in the middle of the older generation still trying really trying to be super relevant and kind of you know sharing their knowledge even though some of their knowledge is getting to be antiquated compared to newer knowledge and things that are coming up in the business and it's just this weird battle going on right now and it'll work itself out over time as it does but it's not the the greatest relationship between the generations right now. Yeah, it's it. And it's just it's not even just like in your profession, but it's just among people. And yeah. just I mean, just it sounds so ridiculous to think that you're seeing something at your job. OK, you don't have to be a doctor to know what a blood clot is. Like, I'm pretty sure you know what one is, right? You see them every day. You like you see them as much as even actually even more than people that do autopsies because you do you embalming on people that didn't even get autopsied. So you're seeing way more like the most dead bodies a day compared to anyone that could ever do an analysis on it. But like, oh, you're not educated enough to to tell us what you're seeing, right? It's that that is annoying to me, and it's just <laughs> and then you also just like have to. You have to. OK, so if you see one thing, you're like picking a side or picking. It's it's like, no, I'm just I'm just stating a fact like you could just look at it however you want. Yeah, not not on a soapbox, not putting up a billboard, not trying to change anybody's mind, just stating 
what has, you know, what our thoughts are and it is what it is, you know? And so, yeah, it was, it was a bit frustrating because I was like, of course, it's the perfect pleaser thing where I'm like, what do you mean I got shut? My video got shut down. It was very like, I want to talk to somebody about this and I want to. And so, of course, I did my appeal and then my second appeal and then I, that was it. So, yeah. And you get you get so frustrated because you're really, you know, you're just talking to a computer. This is an algorithm well, yes. that just picked it up. There's and no. You get, yeah. And and There's especially no. with a high following, you should have access to like a human you could talk to. There's <laughs> no they don't care. <laughs> There's nobody. No, they don't. It's which is frustrating. It's it's like if you're a content creator, you want to understand the system so you can be the best content creator you can be. You can connect with people the best way. And for all the effort, you can create some kind of a monetary revenue for it to make it worth your time. And some of these platforms make it absolutely insanely hard to figure out how to create your revenue or why did my numbers drop by, you know, thousands of, you know, viewers or why did my revenue, not thousands viewer revenue, but why did my subscribers drop all of a sudden? Why did my revenue drop all of a sudden? And there's no one you can ask. There's no way to know. And so it's trying to figure out that you're talking to other content creators and they're they're doing all these little, okay, if I post it here or if I post it there, then this will change. And it is like a big game board that you're trying to figure out, but I don't think there's any one answer because I think the algorithm changes every two days. So I just keep slinging throwing out my my good stuff as best I can, trying to be a little creative, a little fun, but still give good information. And, you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is. But yes, revenue does help. Revenue keeps you going to want to do more because I don't want to take time away from my kids to sit and be a content creator if it's not going to help my family and help my home it's not all about the dollar, but it helps when I'm filling all this time with this stuff. Hey, kids, you got to be quiet. I got to do a video right now. Hey, kids, I got to go edit this. Hey, I got to go do comments. Hey, I have to respond to emails. Hey, I got to make these phone calls. I have to go travel to this place on my dime to make a video about this because I think people would like it. You know, they didn't, I don't think they wanted to go to Pittsburgh and go to the first uh, <laughs> crematory that ever ran in America. They did because they know it's what mom does. But I don't think that was on their plan of the best vacation of their life. And it has no magnitude to them. But we did on our adventure, us three girls together did that. And, you know, one day they'll be like, wow, that was cool. We went there, Ma. We remember that. It won't be anytime soon, I'm going to tell you. But, you know, it's what yeah, we Yeah, no. And then and people people don't understand all the work that goes into it. And Not so much. Um. Yeah, it's I mean, it, at first it started with me doing a post laying in bed at night for an hour, but like it quickly evolves into a, a full time job oh my God. <laughs> and, and still not enough time in the day to do what you want to do, you know? No. And then and then, so I've stepped back a little bit and had to reevaluate because I was so hard on myself, like, oh, my gosh, I didn't post enough this month or I didn't respond to enough comments or I didn't get to that email quick enough. And I'm finally like who's judging me? I'm the only one judging me. I'm the only one that's critical of myself. 
And I'll have people say, oh my gosh, I, I comment on a lot of people's YouTube and nobody ever comments back to me. And I'm like, really? I thought I needed to do that. Or thank you for responding to my email You know, a day later. I didn't expect you to ever respond to me. And I'm like, people don't do that. So I guess maybe my mindset is a little different. I'm from the, you know, thank you note era where that's not how people are now as much. Um, it's just hard because I like today I got a bunch of emails or direct messages. And and then like I feel bad because I'm like this person spent time writing this out and attaching right. these pictures. And but but like there has to be a point where I'm like, I got to cook dinner and I got to take care of my kids who are more important than anybody else in the world. And like, I can't, you just can't give your attention to every single person that wants your attention. It's just not possible. No. And it's, it is nice getting letters and it is nice because I have people who are like, Hey, I went and prearranged my funeral because I felt confident or my mom died. And I walked in there knowing what I wanted, knew what questions to ask me, what to watch for. And I felt really good working with these people because they felt good for all the reasons you told us we needed to watch for and things. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome that someone had a better moment going into a funeral home rather than going in scared, going in thinking they're going to be taken advantage of because they didn't know what to do or what to ask or what to plan for themselves. And so that that makes me happy that people are understanding or taking, gleaning anything from it. But yeah, I mean, I get Christmas cards made out to me and Josh, my boyfriend, and you know, my kids that I don't say their names and stuff. I've tried to, you know, like I try and hold some stuff back. They've been in a couple of videos, but not a lot. I don't post about them much. I try and keep it a bit private just because there are crazies. You just never know. Um, yeah. And plus, as Dolly Parton says, you got to keep a little bit of yourself to yourself and not yes. give it to everybody else. <laughs> yes. That's when I went through my divorce um, a couple of years ago. I posted a video about my grief journey because as a funeral director, you do not grieve normal like most people. No, I could imagine that. Things are turned off. Things are really delayed. It just is not normal. My niece was uh, murdered back in 2008 and I never went through what I would call like any normal grief because I embalmed her. I took care of her, like all these things. So when I went through my divorce... I was going through it. I went through all these big waved emotional moments. I'd be laughing, then I'd be on the floor crying. And so I did a little video on it because I was like, here's what I'm feeling. And this, I believe, has to be similar to what non-fetal directors go through with loss. And people were like, why are you sharing all this stuff? And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what am I sharing? Like, I'm not telling you why I got divorced. I'm not telling you all this other stuff. Like, I'm just sharing emotions and thoughts and stuff. And it was just interesting. People like, why are you sharing? Why are you talking? Why are you lying? And it was, I was like, well, you can kiss. But you're like, this is what's, what, what being a funeral director is. Cause I could imagine like you have children, right? So mm -hmm. when you're doing an embalming on a child that just died, you have to be able to like shut that off and do your job. Cause you yeah. can't be sitting there in the corner crying when you're doing it. No. But they don't talk about just like PTSD and stuff and just like you hold it in, you hold it in. And then when it happened to you in real life, you held it in. And then all of a sudden it came out like vomit. Right. And that's something people need to realize when they go into the, that field, if they're interested, that like that's probably going to happen to you, too. Yeah. Well, and it's it does. It's it's such a mind 
crazy saying to try and psychoanalyze the funeral director brain because I don't even know that you could because it's wild. But <laughs> it is. It's very different. But it is interesting to be criticized for just sharing me. And it's like, well, how can you judge me when I'm just me sharing me? Like, who's going to know me better than me? I, it's 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 a weird, weird thing when you're being told you're doing you wrong. And it's probably the majority of your followers probably I feel like are probably like mine. Like you have this really big set of people that are loyal and they care about every oh, aspect gosh. of your life. And then you're just always going to have some troll and and just. Yeah. Just I, I feel like those people are almost like haters, like they're jealous because they're not doing something like that or whatever. I don't know what it is. I don't try to like psychoanalyze people too much, but just if you want to do it's your page. I say that it's my page. I'll do whatever the hell I want to do. If you don't like it, make your own page and you do it how you would do it. This is yep. my thing. Right. It's it, it it's annoying when people say that because you're just like, sorry, I'm not doing what you think I should be doing. Right. Yeah. Don't watch my videos. Don't look at my TikTok. Don't don't partake in my posts if it's not something you want in your life. Don't do it. I'm not forcing you to do it. I didn't track you down. You came to my stop. You chose this. Just walk away. Don't even say just walk away. <laughs> well, they don't. It is. What oh it no, is. they always they announce that they want to, but they never okay. actually do it. This episode is brought to you by The Gross Room. Do you want to explain for everybody the awesome work you do in there? Yeah, so The Gross Room is kind of, it was kind of born because of the extreme censorship that I get on Instagram. And I made this blog that you can join and you could subscribe to. And I do post deeper dives into all of the news stories. So for example, last week we talked about NFL player uh, Michael Williams and his death, his untimely death at 36 years old from a dental abscess. So I do a deeper dive into cases like that to show like what that would look at like at autopsy and kind of go into more details than we can get into on Instagram or the podcast, especially because some of them are uh, autopsy pictures and stuff can be really graphic. And we also just do so many things like I, I was telling you that the Southwest flight, we we look at cases that are kind of high profile and we break it down and we show all of the photos that we can find from those cases, but also just what things might have looked like at autopsy when these people died. So I think it's a, it's a really educational website, but we also have a lot of fun. It's a great group of people. You could comment back and forth to each other. People have made friends on the gross room. And we we just love it. And there's posts every day, lots of content, lots of videos, audio. We do we do audio of a lot of things. And actually, we were doing this podcast for like what a year before we started yeah. this this public one. So if you're interested in the podcast too, you could go back and listen to all of the old episodes when me and Maria were first starting out with this and we're stuttering all the time. <laughs> um but yeah, it's it's cool and it's an it's just like a nice it's a nice meeting place for people that like are into things that are a little bit weird but want to learn something too. It's 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 awesome. I love it. Yeah, so especially we have 50 episodes before Mother Knows Death launch you could tune into 
We read all of the high-profile and celebrity death dissections on audio. Today, for example, I'll be adding a couple pictures into this episode's post for more information, so make sure to visit thegrossroom.com. And you can join for only $5.99 a month, and if you hate it, then you could unjoin. But you know what? We have sales once in a while that you can join for only $20 for the whole year, and most people that start month to month, they jump right on that because they just love it so much, so... See you in the gross room. So this question is for all of my fellow people that do autopsies. So one of the first things that was like ingrained in me as a PA student was to make sure that every single autopsy I do to make sure that the incisions are in the correct spot and that I don't cut anything that I'm not supposed to cut, even if they tell us that the person's getting cremated because sometimes last minute families change their mind and everything. So I feel like I've always been really good at it just because my mentors were were like standing over me. Don't buttonhole the neck. Don't do it. You're going to, they can't wear, you know, they can't have an open casket, all this stuff. So um, we like I leave the carotids really long. I got taught how to cut them so low. So even if they retract, you could still see them. And one of my mentors even ties them off. Um, just we always have this thing that we're not the last person that's going to be in this body. So like leave it nice for the next person kind of thing. Yeah. Um, cleaning the body off, putting it in a body bag so it doesn't leak in your car. I mean, obviously, like if a person has a like a lot of edema or something, there's nothing we can do about the leaking, right. but what, do you ever get a body that's botched like from an autopsy and do you have any advice for people that do autopsies like things that you prefer when you get the body? Goodness, yes. So many botched. We can always tell when there's somebody new or there's a new student or or whatever because the incision will come past the ear up here. Um, oh, there'll be extra God. holes through the back or through kind of up in the neck in children, extra little holes up in the neck that accidentally happens. That just makes us so angry. Um, those things definitely happen, cutting the vessels too short. So when we're talking vessels, we're talking arteries, we need those to inject. So we want there to be six of them, the two up into the head, one into each arm and one into each leg. We sometimes have to dig for the arm and the leg, which is fine. The neck, though, if this one retracts up, we have no nothing else to inject up into the head. We could try the circle of Willis. I don't know even. I actually asked some embalmers recently. I'm like, have you ever tried that, like injecting into the circle of Willis? And they're like, depends on if it's cut. If it's whole, you could try and I'm like, I just, if it, it, cause I had a case and this, it was gone. It was absolutely, there's literally nothing up into the neck that I could find to even try to inject. So the whole side of the face, I had to just soak from the outside um, with chemical because there was no way I could get fluid up in there. And so that is super crucial. A lot of them will tie it off and hang strings so you can quick grab them, which is great. But there are those that absolutely do not. Or you get the super invasive autopsies where they do a spinal, they do the back of the legs, they. Um, oh yeah. I'm trying to think of some of the worst. Yeah, we've had um, a girl got hit by a car, and so they did the whole back of her legs to 
look at the bruising and everything. Um, that's hard. Anything on the back of a deceased is very tricky for us because we have to roll the person. We don't want to roll them on their face because we need the face to look good. So we can roll them kind of up against a wall if we hold the table and prep them against the wall to suture. But that much, it's a lot of suturing. Uh, knowing why some of that is done would be great. Like, hey, by the way, we did this incision because of this rather than us thinking, what the heck are they doing over there? Are they just like cutting them all apart for whatever reason just because they want to? Because it's really hard. It's a lot of leaking, especially if it's on the backside. We got gravity and it's a lot of leaking. But I'm trying to think what would be good advice. It's, you know? it's actually interesting because there's a standard thing. So if a person has a pulmonary embolism or something, you would you would check to see where it came from. And, and most oftentimes it comes from the deep veins in the leg. And there is a dissection that we learn to take that out and look at it. But I recall like several pathologists being like, you know what, that's going to be hell for the funeral director. And like, wh who cares where it came from? Like, it's there and they're dead because of it. It came, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, there has to be a certain level of like, you're going to make this person complete hell if you take out all of the vessels in this person's leg right now. You right. know, it's just something you have to think about a lot of times. But I could see when I was at the ME's office, because they just had so many bodies every day, they weren't like teaching the people how to do a dissection to take out the larynx and like leave the carotids really long and stuff. So I I could see how you could have a problem. Trust me. Well, taking, <laughs> taking the tongue is gone sometimes. And um, so we have to rebuild kind of the Adam's apple. We have to, you know, do certain things because this is completely empty from what usually would be there. And so we have to kind of rebuild the neck when we are doing the embalming I think some people just go so fast, you know, oh, we got to get through all these bodies. We have so many. We got to just go and they're shoo, 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 and not thinking of that after. So I wish everybody had that mindset that's working at the, you know, pathology and medical examiner's office. But it's just not the case, um, especially with children. I'm like, how do you make any mistake with a child? Like it should be slow and super methodical, but these extra holes and things are just so frustrating. You probably notice a difference between an autopsy of a child that you get from a children's hospital versus one that you get from the ME's office. Like my, my one of my best friends is is a PA. She she's been she's been a pediatric PA almost her entire career and they take 8 hours to do an autopsy well, on a child. You know, like they are like the most respect, the most care, the most let's because a parent wants to know, like, if I have another baby, are they going to have this problem? There's just, like, all these additional things you do with a child. And I don't think that she's ever had that problem of cutting through the neck because they just know that the skin on a child's so much thinner there and everything. Yeah. But, yeah, and especially, like, if the parent wants an open casket, then I guess this kind of goes for my next question. Um, when When I was a teenager, I knew someone that I worked with that she was – at a hair salon, she had gotten shot in the head by her ex-husband. Mm -hmm. And we we all were getting ready to go to the funeral. And I, I don't know, in my head, I was just like, she got shot in the head. Like, she's not having an open casket, right? Mm -hmm. And when we went to the funeral, she w did have an open casket. And I was like, mind blown. Like, oh my God, I can't believe you could get shot in the head and still have an open casket. Yeah. So 
I know that you guys are miracle worker artists and stuff. Have you, and this goes back to with the kid having an incision in their neck, like what are some of the, or have you ever had a case that you really didn't want to do an open casket and the family was like, I need to have this done. And you pulled off like some kind of miracle for them. Like what are some of the more extensive things that you've done? Yeah, I've not done like a full completely obliterated kind of cranium full from scratch pieces, resect the face, full restoration. I've never needed to do that. Um, A shotgun would be something that would do a lot of destruction to a person's head. You could theoretically put all all back together in some way um, and be perfectly presentable and recognizable. They're never going to look perfect at all. Um, because it's not them and they've been disrupted and you've just put the pieces back. But simple hair restorations, things like being shot in the head with a small caliber, you're going to have some eye bruising. You might have a bit of swelling, but typically the entry is small. The exit may be a bit bigger, but it may also be small. So you're just putting and patching you may have to do some hair restoration. I had a kid once had killed himself and shot himself through the head with a small caliber and just had an entry and exit wound, but they had shaved around doing an autopsy just to make sure that it was suicide and such. And so we had this weird shaved section. So I just cut parts of the back of his hair and laid it in and covered it. And his mom was so happy. She's like, you've given me back my child. I don't have to look at what was done. And it was just such a nice moment to have that. I've had some where they're bad car accidents, a lot of distortion that I've done everything I could do and they viewed and closed for the public, but the families spent time and viewed Ret, uh, done head wraps where there was literally nothing left of the head that I could do really much with. I mean, if I'd been given like five days and an endless, you know, financial supply to pay for everything I could have possibly, but where we've just kind of constructed a head shape wrapped in um, towel or a sheet or something and dressed and had them laid out so the family could come in and hold their hand or whatever, you know, there's always something we can do in some ways. When you get to advanced decomposition, that's when we can't even bring them in the building because of the smell. Okay. I was actually going to ask you about that. (laughs) Yeah. Because it smells like obviously a decomposed person smells so bad. So I I was even thinking like just bringing them into the building would smell up the whole entire place. So, So what do you do in those situations when you get those calls? If we know it's extreme decomposition, we will leave them because they're typically at the medical examiner's office at that point. We leave them at the medical examiner's office until we're taking them to the grave or we're taking them to the crematory and we'll pick them up and take them. We'll take the casket with us or the cremation box and we will place them in it and take them directly to their place. If the family insists on seeing them, we explain that viewing has to be done out in the garage because we have to respect everyone that's being served by the business and we have to just maintain the integrity of the business as well. I mean, we can, if I walk in the back door at the funeral home and I know if there's a decomp position, I would call them decomp, you know, in the building. And this is, they're in a bag, they're in a cooler, they're 
down a set of stairs, through two doorways, you can smell it. It permeates like nothing else because it's fat-soluble smell. And so it just permeates. You can't bring that in your business to penetrate out into the rooms that other families that are in, that all your staff is in, that everything. You just can't do that as a business. But you have garages. You can leave them at the medical examiner's office as long as possible. It's a sad thing. It's hard. You can take photo of them and show it to the family if they sign an authorization. So then you're not factoring in the smell. They can still see them without the smell if that suffices. So it's coming up with options that maybe are a good middle point for a family if they do want to see just so that they know it's their loved one. So there's times that you say, like, we advise you not to see this body and people push and push for it and then you would you would let them? <laughs> there's no way you can stop them. So you as a funeral home can say no. They can go to a different funeral home. It's their loved one. They have every right to see them legally. So they can, you can't really stop them unless you choose as a funeral home not to allow it. They may have to sign something or, or whatever the case. Um, typically, a viewing of an unembalmed body may be the form just to have something legal that maybe they can't come back and sue you for mental anguish if you know they want to later. But they have the right I have advised against viewing sometimes. When I was younger in my career, I didn't see the potential of some people that, oh, I could have done this or that. Now I'm like, gosh, I wish they had that body in front of me because, heck, I could do so much with them. But if someone doesn't have a nose, I didn't realize how much I could do to recreate a nose or um, e extreme decomposition where maybe Maybe I could have, but some of the times, by the time we even speak to them, the medical examiner's office has already told them they shouldn't view, which is not a great thing because sometimes just doing a bath and checking out the person gives a whole different vantage point to how they're going to look. But we have investigators who will be like, yeah, you're not going to want to see them. It's terrible. And then they get to us and they're like, we were told not to see them. So it's out of our mind. We don't even want to. And it's like, but they look okay. Are you sure? So sometimes it's bad advice for someone who maybe shouldn't be giving the advice on whether they can view or not until we get them and know exactly what the scenario is because we can do a lot more than sometimes the investigators have any knowledge of us being able to do. And a bad yeah, I helps. I get that. Like they don't they don't the people at the Emmy's office like I I would think I mean, I've seen people in car accidents and stuff that have died and just think like, "Oh god, like but we like we don't know doing the autopsy the miracles that you're capable of doing so right. shouldn't be well and road rash i mean like when someone goes across asphalt or goes through a window and has like little abrasions it looks far worse than it is once we clean off the blood and the glass and so that's the first thing we have to do is bathe them and get all the glass off and get the blood off and kind of get the dirt and whatever is on them from being out in the elements and really see what we're working with. Because it may just be needing to dry out those abrasions, dry out the cuts and everything. And, you know, once they're dry, you can wax and then cosmetize and fill some of it. So it's not as bad as it initially may look to some people. So. Yeah, some of the stuff that you, you guys do is cool. Like one interesting thing is when 
Um, I when my grandmom died, she was really jaundiced. Mm-hmm. She because she had the gallbladder cancer, and um, she she like was re- she was just like bright yellow when she died. And when we went to the viewing, she she looked um, she looked great. Like she yeah. looked like her normal color. And I went up to the funeral director and I was like, yo, <laughs> what would you do? Because like she looks great. And he said he was telling me that there was like dyes or something in the embalming fluid. And yeah. it, it's weird because he yeah. was I was like, you could talk to me about this stuff because I can imagine that he was a little uncomfortable that the granddaughter of the of the person was like, tell me what you did to get her to look like this, you know? Exactly. It was really cool. So um. What, every funeral that we've ever had in my family is very just like Catholic traditional. We've either, you know, have a viewing and and then it's a service at the funeral home and or or to get cremated or to go to the the graveyard or the cemetery and that's it. I've never had anything like any kind of craziness in our family of somebody that did something untraditional, but. I've been a couple years ago, there was like all these articles going off and people sending me these articles of people that were getting embalmed and like propped on top of their motorcycle and standing in the corner of their kitchen and all this crazy stuff. So have you ever had any like super crazy requests and were you able to pull off the request that they asked for? No, that's called extreme embalming. And (laughs) they do it the most down in Puerto Rico. I don't know why they started down in Puerto Rico doing this, but they have a funeral home down there that has done it the most. When you look at all these pictures, if you put together every picture there is about extreme embalming, it's like the same seven bodies. And it just keeps recycling and then keeps going out. So it looks like it's happening often where it's just not. It's been done a few times in America and pictures come up. But I think most people are going to shy away from it because of the huge unknown, the huge liability to it. Because you have to embalm that body so they're still pliable to be able to put them in a casket later. Which means their arms are up for whatever this positioning, and then they have to be able to move them down. So you're doing a very soft embalming. Well, with preservation, you have rigidity. So they're not being well preserved. It seems like to be able to do that, I can't. I don't know. I can't speak for experience, but I'm like, okay. So we need duct tape. We need PVC pipe. We need rods. We need zip ties. We need all these things to happen to be able to facilitate this. Then we have to make sure this body doesn't purge, that it's not going to start smelling. It's not going to just, you know, go to hell before we can get them buried. So I feel like most funeral homes wouldn't take it on because of the liability of all the things that could go wrong with the whole thing. Um, I did interview a woman in Canada that did this. It was the drummer. And she really didn't say much of what she did. She stayed very, very gray area talking about what she actually did. Because I'm like, did you embalm like normal? Did you? And she's like, I embalm like normal. And then I just positioned them. I'm like, well, no, I can you tell didn't. you not a <laughs> body I've ever embalmed has been that loosey-goosey unless they had, come, they had uh, medication in them that neutralized the embalming. And then that body's going to crap super fast. So I'm like, I just don't see how it can happen unless this is happening super quickly to get them in the ground or something. So I think that there's there's an unknown there that I I have yet to mentally figure out or scientifically. It would be interesting to like be given a donated body and say, hey, what could you do with this? 
and to do trial and error and just kind of see if I could, what result we could get, how we could get them set up, how long they would position for, what problems we may encounter, and then get them in a casket and see if it could work. I would hate to have a family come in and say, this is what I want, Carrie, let's do this. Um, huh, okay. Sometimes before you sit down with the family, the body's already embalmed. Yeah, so then that's true. They're super firm and, you know, they're a rock on a on the rock hard on the table. And all of a sudden they're telling you they want to do this, that, or the other. I don't know how I would do it at that point. If I knew ahead, maybe, but mm, logistical nightmare to me is what it sounds like. And I would hate to fail that family by trying to do something and it going horrifically wrong. Yeah, because like, what if you're trying to bend them into position and you can't do it and then you mess something up for them to even have a normal thing at that point? I I see that. Like, I see that you would want to practice on and and really like who's going to donate their body for that practice. Exactly. There's got to be someone along the lines. I've had people tell me, I want to donate my body to you so you can do a live embalming. And I'm like, no, thanks. So like, yeah. I don't want that. That's going to be, first of all, shut down by, you know, YouTube or whatever. But I can see at some point that it's going to happen. You know, I remember there was a movie. I couldn't even tell you what it was when they were airing a live um, execution or something. And that was just how the society was. And I'm like, you know, eventually, yes, we're going to be doing all this crazy stuff live and anybody can watch these things and stuff. I'm like, it's just not now and it's not going to be me right now. Sorry, it's just not. Yeah, I say that too. like people are always like, can you do an autopsy live? And I'm like, no, it's not going to be me. Like I'm not who would who would allow who would allow that? Like you have to get permission from their family. And it's like, who would for science? I'm like, if you actually really ever saw an autopsy, you would never want that. You would never want that to be like on film like that for For your loved one. Yeah. yeah, like I, I mean, we've done them um, for the medical school and stuff just to show the medical students, but yeah. that's not. It's just, it's really gruesome. I don't, I don't think that you would say like, yeah, you could do my dad like that, and it's like, no, nah, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to see that. That's not, that's not something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a I'm, little graphic. Yeah, it's it's a little weird to want that, but at some point there'll be somebody you just there always is gonna be that one person person. (laughs) totally yeah so this so on the mother knows death podcast this week we talked about um this big case that's been going on for a couple months now of this funeral home i'm sure you've heard of it called return to nature funeral home and they they promoted their services for doing green um funerals with no embalming fluid and i guess technically they gave all of their people what they asked for however not in that kind of way because i don't think anybody would have agreed to that but i guess back in the i think it was back in the summer the neighbors were complaining that there was a smell and the the police officer showed up and found 200 bodies in this warehouse type thing stacked on top of each other decomposed body fluid all over the place maggots all over and just imagine the smell of one body let alone 200 that some of them were there for years apparently yeah um so like i have so many questions on this like how did this happen don't you have to have some kind of accreditation and and rules to follow and how did this happen colorado so these are unlicensed people 
um, oh, John and Halpern. And um, yeah, so they went in and they're not licensed funeral directors or embalmers. They were running this um, natural burial and cremation company. They had two locations, one where they functioned out of, the other was kind of more of a holding place. And they initially thought that, oh, they kind of pissed off and didn't pay their bills with crematories. And so, you know, beginning the summer, they just stopped cremating the bodies and started holding them. So initially they thought, oh, there's like 80 some bodies in here from over the summer when they went in there in October, end of September, October. And then once they really looked into it, found, and they were all cremation. None of them were burial initially from what they were talking. It was all bodies intended for cremation. The families were given back things that were not cremated remains, sand, kitty litter, whatever it is, concrete. And once they're now into it, they found they have decided it's 190 bodies. They are not all identified yet from the last I heard. And in the process, they're starting to disinter some people to check into other scenarios and they're finding that there are other things going on beyond the cremation and there are bodies from back to 2017 that were found in that building so this was going on for six years no five how many six years yeah and um, that they had been not burying and cremating individuals as they were supposed to it's a very long time for it to go on but not understand like oh. i i don't know there's not like i mean i know that it's different than a hospital but like there's not there's there's not like inspections or well, it's unless the state is called they don't come in to inspect there's not enough staff on the inspection board to go around and inspect unless there is something turned in just to tell you for michigan so i knew a local funeral home had no licensed funeral director operating in it they had no license on the wall with a manager that had a license that had a funeral director's license. Bodies were being embalmed there. Had spoken to all the trade embalmers that would ever go there. None of them were going there. Everybody had basically turned their back for this period of time. I called the state and I said, Hey, I know this is happening 100%. Will you investigate? Well, ma'am, you're going to need to go online. You're going to need to print out this form. You're going to put it in writing. You're going to put it in the mail, and you're going to drop it in the mail to us. We have two weeks to look in, to respond to that, and then it decide if we're going to investigate. And at that point, then we may investigate if something is going on there or not. And I said, so you're telling me you are willing to wait at least two weeks for families to be served there, you know, served by a non-licensed person, embalmed, whatever, before you're going to even look into it. She goes, yes, that's our process. And I'm like, this is why people go to the media first, because there is a yeah. response. I will give a lot of credit to Colorado. Um, Faith, who runs the mortuary school out in Colorado, credited licensed mortuary school, um, said that they were super impressed as well because as soon as they were called, they were in investigating. It wasn't a delay. There was no, oh, we'll investigate later. They were in and it was shut down and everybody was in there and they were pulling bodies. It was so quick that they were on this and that families were being notified and things were happening. So I give them a lot of credit for looking into things so quickly because it's not always the way it's done. But this is probably the second biggest 
a funeral home crematory incident, I believe, in the country. I don't, I, um, Tri State Crematory down in Georgia had over 300 bodies with their scenario. I think it was back in 2002, and they were throwing bodies out in the woods and not cremating them. So I think that's the biggest. And this is, I, I believe, the second biggest. I've done a series of videos on naughty funeral directors, and I don't think any of the stories were anywhere near this amount of deceased um, in any of the stories. It's just really, it's really sick. Like I know working in this field and stuff, you get desensitized or whatever. That's, that's normal. But to think about just showing up at a location and just throwing a human on top of a human on top of a human like that is when that smell it is just, I can't even imagine what the smell was opening the door to that place. No, for um, years. For, for years. years. It's it's like it's it's very gross. And to know that you're causing all that that it's just it's something I can't really wrap my brain around. And the fact that a husband and wife were like, yeah, this is this is going to be our plan. This is like what was their plan? What what were they thinking? I don't understand. Right. I, I don't know that they were. I think once they did it a few times. What I have thought out loud is, OK, even if it was just the cremation bodies and it was for monetary profit, and it was 190 bodies, and they were cremating them for $2,000. So let's do the math. You know, 190 times 2,000 is only $380 revenue. Like, is that really worth your whole life of going to be incarcerated for? It's really not. I mean, it's not that huge of a number over six years, that's only what, 60, 70,000 a year that you're taking in from doing that? Like, is it really worth that? I, I don't know. Maybe it is, obviously was to them. But now that they're diving into this, there's burial bodies that are involved. I had somebody in my live video, I think it was yesterday or the day before, said to me, um, hey, my brother was one of the victims of a return to nature. And what do you have to say about this? And I was like, I don't know anything about this. And so the claim was that they had disinterred a casket at a national cemetery and found a woman duct taped inside of it. All sensational news. I have no idea. This has not made the news. This is nothing. So whether people are just trolling and throwing information, whether this is real information, I have no idea. But if it's a national cemetery, it could become a federal situation. But why would you not bury the person you're supposed to bury? I don't know where that would benefit a funeral director. So it's like, okay, if you're going to be an illegal, naughty person, how is this act benefiting you by not burying the person you're supposed to bury. What would make sense to me is to have extra bodies in the casket that you were supposed to cremate that you didn't, that you stuck in a casket for burial. That would make sense financially, but not having the right, it just, there's so much illogical information that I'm being sent from several, you know, family members, whether they're truly family members or not. And so I think it's going to get really interesting as it plays out because if any of this other stuff is true that people have posted on my my YouTube and stuff, I don't understand any motive. And this gentleman, what's funny is I first heard the story about this and didn't know who it was. The name sounded familiar. I went to go look and I was like, 
oh my God. So this guy had tried to make a really good, strong Instagram presence. He had reached out to me. We had talked a few times um, on Instagram, on the, you know, and direct messages about, you know, the business and whatever, just kind of random general stuff. He had tried to do a stand-up comedy career once he had become a funeral director. He would he would post about the funeral home all the time and stuff. When I saw who it was, I was like, holy crap. Like, oh my gosh. Like, I know that guy. I know, I know who that is. We've talked before. Um yeah, it's just wild. And the fact that he is not in prison right now because he got out on bail or on bond or whatever it's called, has the family so upset. And they're talking about statute of limitation. They're like, oh, maybe these old bodies we can't prosecute for because they've been dead for so long. Well, it's like, well, if the families knew they weren't where they were supposed to be, they would have prosecuted them earlier on it. So it's not the family's fault that these people are the deceased fault. We just, they didn't get found out. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over time. They just, they had a case in Colorado again, because it's the Wild West of no licensing that the mother daughter um, team, funeral director team, were selling body parts. And they finally got found out. And it took a long time before they went to trial and they were. Um, given their sentence and everything, but because they had been shipping across the country and used the uh, mail, it became a federal offense. Oh, that's interesting. So they went after them harder because of the federal. So sometimes they have to step back, figure out what way to penalize someone the most, and then go after them. Because it's, you know, I'm I'm one of those, well, they're not guilty till they're found guilty. Well, there's I'm I, there's no doubt in my mind these people are guilty. They've basically, they're the only ones and they've posted text messages that the husband and wife said to each other, like, I hope we don't get found out and I want to protect us if we do and because we're going to go down forever and blah, 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 back and forth. And it's like, what? It is a crazy What, what are people, yeah, and I think and uh, there's more, there's a lot more that's going to come out about it because yeah. you, you have to sit there and say like, like what I I don't know I keep I and I don't work like I don't work in your field so I don't know exactly what the process is but I keep thinking like okay maybe you needed to pay a bill and you took the money and you're like I'm gonna take that person as soon, like next week to bring them and nobody's gonna find out and then right you but then when you think of the sheer volume of of almost 200 people then and just what happens after you have people stacked on? I do, I have a visual of what this looks like well, now. You're good, yeah. And and I just honestly like if that was my dad or my mom or something, I just don't even want to know that that happened because all I would think about the rest of my life is my mom at the bottom of some pile of of like I said in my podcast, necrotic slop. Just like oh, it'd be terrible. Oh, oh my god, and and just think like you don't want to think about that, and then. You have these ashes at your house that you think are your family member. And it's like they also said they found animal remains there. So maybe they were sending cremated animals to them or something. I don't even know. Could be. Yeah, I know they've been testing. You can't DNA test cremated remains. It's physically impossible. But you can test to see if it's, you know, something else. Human. (laughs) Test to see if it's concrete or you can test to see if it's kitty litter or you know these are things that they do look like cremated remains kitty litter is about the most closest resembling from what i've seen to cremated remains it's dusty it's 
kind of that color. It's got little granules in it, which would be like the bone particles. So someone might, when they don't have a clue as to what cremated remains look like, may never question it. But there's a lot of people who never even open that box. You hand them the box, they take it home, they never open it. Yeah, like that's that's what we've been talking about in my family because like my my um husband's mom was cremated and in a box and he's like I'm not opening that box like it, yeah. he he won't like I want to go peek in it and see what it looks like but he's just like I'm not opening it and then I was talking to my daughter about it too and she's like yeah like w- we were talking about that scene in Meet the Parents I don't know if you ever oh, saw yeah. that movie when the breaks and yeah when the urn falls down and it looks like like cigarette ashes almost or like something you would see at the bottom of a fire like people just think ashes are ashy looking and and they don't know that it's a little chunky and yeah um yeah like why would you question it yeah it's just it's it's so messed up yeah it's the whole thing is it just hard to i think wrap your mind around like if it was a couple bodies and it was you know just cremation i could see monetarily or you know some things i could maybe come up with reasoning. It's not good reasoning, but come up with some reasoning. But the way this story is going and it's kind of playing out, it makes absolutely no sense. None. It doesn't sound like monetary even. If you're burying caskets that are empty or caskets that have the wrong body in them, how is that benefiting you? Um, It just, there's a lot of illogical action in it that's beyond just going for money or something it just makes no sense so these so all of these bodies do you think that i guess they all had to go to like the medical examiner's office and get examined they did they all went um and they went they did it very quickly i have to give them a huge credit we were looking at the timeline one day when faith and i were doing a video together about this and i I mean, it was just in it, it within like two weeks or something or three weeks at most. Like it was super fast that they removed all the bodies. They went through and were able to identify. I am guessing there was probably ankle tags or bracelets on some of them or in body bags that had tags that would help them to identify. Because um, if you think of where we remove deceased from, hospitals, medical examiner's offices, they are all tagged and labeled when we receive them. So I would imagine some of them would have a quicker identification because of those things, but you would have to do some DNA testing, I would think, as well, because visually you wouldn't be able to identify, I imagine, any of them, or at least the vast majority. Yeah, and you can't even, I mean, you can't even really trust that if it does have a bracelet or a tag on it, that that's the person that's in the bag kind of thing. Right. Like, especially if just the bag was labeled and not, I mean, I guess it would help sort things out, but I guess they're also looking at the bodies to see, because you were talking about the other funeral home with the body parts situation. Like, I guess you're looking at these bodies to make sure that they're not missing like major, like an arm or bone or a heart or something like that, that was taken out to, and none of that has come out, but that, I mean, it could be a part of this. It would maybe explain why it would make more sense at least somebody was buried and somebody wasn't or something or. Yeah, I'm not sure. So that may be another another part to the puzzle that comes out eventually. That would make more sense monetarily for selling parts and organs that they were getting paid for it. It would make more sense. But yeah, there's so much to this that I think has not even been touched. 
that they're going to have to dive into. And they are doing such a huge investigation on it. It's it's unbelievable. So what their their whole marketing thing, because it, it seems like they had a like a decent volume of 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 people. Yeah, was just like what what is it that people are attracted to a, a green burial as opposed to a traditional one? It's just more natural. There's no vault. There's no embalming. If it is, it's natural embalming fluids. There are green embalming fluids. Um, people like the, oh, I'm going to go back to nature and I'm not going to be in a box getting soupy or drying out. I'm just going to regenerate back to nature. So people do like that. We get asked for that a lot where people just want to become become a tree. You know, it's it's such a phrase <laughs> now that people just want to be a tree, whether they're cremated or not, which is ironic with cremation because cremation has a huge environmental footprint, just like burial, the traditional burial does. So why make this huge environmental footprint with cremation and then feel like it's great to then be a tree? Like it's, it's, it's kind of counterproductive. Um, yeah, people love the natural thought. They love just going back to nature in an organic way. So they're, people are drawn to that. So I can see why as a funeral home based strictly around that type of a burial. And then you don't have to have an embalmer on staff. Nobody has to be trained as an embalmer. All you're doing is cremating and naturally burying people. So you don't have to do anything preparation wise. So it makes your staff a lot better in terms of, especially in Colorado, where you don't have to be licensed. You don't have to have someone that's at all knowledgeable about embalming specifically. Every time you guys do a cremation, I mean, you wouldn't like if it was a regular cremation, like my dad died and I was like, I want him to get cremated. You wouldn't embalm him first, right? No, most funeral homes only require embalming if there's a public viewing. And okay. so if it's a simple cremation or you just have like a family simple view time with a few people prior to cremation, you wouldn't need embalming unless there was an extended period of time in your state required it for some reason. Okay. So then, so then yeah. most most cremations are then like a return to nature. Well, aside yeah. from what you're saying. Yeah. The gas and the emissions and all of that is is what's detrimental to the environment because of it. But the body is being reduced to the most basic organic components of your body. Yeah. So what advice would you have for just everyday people that like for for us, for example, we have with my grandmom and grandpa, like we kind of had like a uh, like a family funeral home that we trust. And um, my husband's also friends with a, a firefighter's family that owns a funeral home around here. So if we ever had like we know where to go. But what what advice do you have to people? Because obviously, like all these people that went to this of return to nature of funeral home trusted yeah. them yeah. and how do you how do you find something if you don't if you don't really know about them like that right well and that's one thing that i talk about i think a lot of my videos is do your due diligence visit the location if they have both locations ask to visit both locations if they won't let you into one location why if you go visit there how do you feel in your gut do you ask for a price list and they refuse to give you one unless you sit down with them? That's illegal. If you ask to see this, that, or the other and they won't, then there's got to be reason. So look for the red flags. Don't go in 
anticipating that someone's bad, but be open to recognizing red flags. And if your gut tells you something's off, it typically is going to be. If you're in a state that has licensure, which is every state but Colorado right now, they're changing that in Colorado, you can get on the webs on get online and type in like Michigan Mortuary Science License Lookup. You can pull up, you can type in a business's name and you can look to see if they have a license. You can see if it's in good standing. You can see how long they've had it. This is going to tell you a lot. You can look up the funeral director and look up their license and see if they actually are a licensed funeral director. Reading reviews online is not always great because anybody can leave a review about anything and it can be fictitious or not. So that's not always good. But if you go and you look for a company and they have an extensive number of bad reviews and they're all kind of keep saying the same thing at different time points. They're not all like on the same day from same family or something. Then there might be something going on. So just look for red flags that might exist. Don't make up red flags, but you're going to know in your gut with how someone responds to you. The big though, ask for a price list. If they don't give it to you, that's illegal. Ask to kind of see the facilities. If they want, not the preparation room because you can't go in there, but if they won't show you around, why? So there's things could be big red flags that are simple requests. And if they don't want to participate in them with you, there could be a problem. If you're burying your loved one or cremating them, you can go to the crematory. You can witness the cremation happen. You can push the button. You can view them at the funeral home and follow them to the crematory. In some states, you cannot open the box at the crematory. So you may not be able to view at the crematory right before the cremation. So that might always not always be a thing, but you can see them at the funeral home, follow them to the crematory, watch that box go into the cremator, and you can sit there the whole time and then take your cremator remains home. If you want to be 110% sure, be there through the whole process. These are things that are allowed. They may charge more for them because they have to function their whole day around that, which hinders the number of cremations the crematory can do that day and such. So there may be a charge, but you can do this. You can see them before they go on the ground and ensure that it's your loved one. So if you have a question, ask, because you are allowed to do all these things. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. And I didn't I didn't realize that you could do that. And that's yeah. like I would probably do that now because I because <laughs> I'd be so it's scared. Just, but yeah, it's good to follow through and and do due diligence. It's it's I've been preaching that to my students. That's one of our words in our class is due diligence. So you have all this stuff going on. You do the YouTube, you're a wife, you're in a relationship, you yeah. teach and you have a job. Like are you before we wrap up, I just wanted to see if you were working on anything else or always I have so many like I'm looking up at my whiteboard above my desk that has like things to work on for the year um hey I we started a um a series called six feet under exhumed so faith who I've been talking about um from Colorado and I have been re-watching the six feet under series and as a re-watcher um kind of thing so we've been like dissecting it as funeral directors watching it so that's been fun but that's 70 episodes of a show we have to watch and then film about it. And so 
that takes time. But I have three books started. I would like to work on them. They've been like there and I never sit down and have just time where I, I connect with them and just spill into them. I would love to work on these books and at some point get one of them done. And whether anybody reads it or not, I don't know, but at least it'll be done and I'll have feel successful that I completed it. I just want to like skirt off to a cabin in the woods for a week and just drink wine and write. And I think it was Ernest Hemingway said, write drunk, edit sober. And I always think about that because I I always, you know, you get great ideas. I feel like one glass of wine and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I, like, oh my, I want to do this, that or the other. And um, so I don't know. There's all these things I'd like to do. There's outside of this, I'd like to get rental properties. And I have a product I want to like bring to market and like all these little things, but it all takes time. And at the end of the day, after everything else, I can either be exhausted by losing two or three more hours of sleep, or I can treat myself good and get good sleep for being a better version of myself the next day. So it's hard. It's hard to be selfish with my time and work on something just that I want to work on when there's so many people around me I want to pour into and things I want to do. And I don't want everything I do to be focused around my career. And sometimes I've wanted yeah, to hard. focus on being Carrie, the person and the mom and the girlfriend and the daughter and the sister and that version of me and not just all be about death care and carry the mortician and everything. I think that's hard because we see people at the funeral home and, you know, they might have been a veteran. That was four years of their life back in, you know, 1942. And their whole funeral is around, you know, circled around them being a veteran. And I'm like, what about the rest of their life? That was four years. Yes, they served. And yes, that was important. But what about every other part of their life and it's like people fixate on a career or one hobby or one thing rather than a person as a whole. So that part of being a funeral director has resonated with me more in the last couple of years as I've become more of Carry the Mortician, trying to really it's try and stay grounded as Carry the person. And it's hard, I think. It's really hard. Yeah, it is. It is hard. I, I completely can relate with you. It's funny that you were just talking about Hemingway because we just over Christmas time, we just drove down to his house in Key West. Oh, that's cool. It was really cool. But um, I said, as soon as we left, I said to my husband, like, isn't it kind of weird that this guy only lived here like seven years and this is like, this whole thing is like his house. And it's like, that wasn't what I would really consider to be his house. Mm -hmm. He just, his, his wife's family bought it and he lived there and he divorced his wife and moved out and she stayed there with the kids. But like, that's not really his house. It was only such a short period of his life. You know, like I would consider and maybe like his house in Cuba is like his house. He was there the longest. And yeah, it's just it's just funny how people get hooked on like these few small years of someone's life and, and then describe them when life is so like long and, you yeah. know, people do so many other things. Well, that's, yeah, writing an obituary. You sit down with someone who lost their mom who's 104 and how do you in you know, one paragraph, sum up 104 years and always the focus is on the last few years of their life. Well, they liked knitting and bingo and watching Prices Right. It's like, well, <laughs> did they like doing that when they were 40? 
Yeah, but like because what, what was what was their personality then? <laughs> the children didn't know their parents when they were 40. And so that's the hard part is because you're sitting with people that can't reflect on a part of their parents' life often that they didn't know about. And so they do. They focus on the end, the grandma phase, the elderly person phase. And that's who a person becomes. And it's like, oh, dang, I kind of want to imprint more these versions of this part of my life rather than who I'm going to be in hopefully 40 years kind of thing. You know, it's interesting. 40 years, gosh knows what any of this is going to be like, you know, the funeral business, online, social media. Goodness, who knows what it'll look like? Yeah, I, I just don't I don't even know what to think about that because you just couldn't even have predicted this. Right. It's I try oh my to gosh, no. I try to tell the kids all the time, like when we when we were kids, like we just turned on the TV and whatever was on was on. Like we couldn't just pick right. what we wanted to watch. And remember how long it used to take for a movie to get out of the theater and get on VHS, even like they just don't, yeah. they'll just never understand. And I think it takes away a part of, of the enjoyment of life, to be honest with you. Like we brought them to Disney world and they weren't like completely mind blown by it. Like we were when we were kids. Um, and I just think it's like, well, they have this device and they could see whatever they want. And it's like them yep. going through the haunted mansion and seeing the special effect isn't mind blowing to them because they they have a they have an iPad, you know, like. Well, they can watch 20 videos on YouTube about people going through it already oh. ahead of time. So none of it's a surprise almost that's talking about that. We watched Home Alone at Christmas time. And it got done. And I was like, did you guys notice what wasn't in that movie and what was a challenge for them? And they were like, what? And I was like, they couldn't call him. They're like, yeah, there was there was no cell phone. And I was like, right. There was no cell phone. There was no way for mom to call from Paris just to check on him because he he was, you know, eight and had a cell phone sitting at home. They had to use a landline and it was down. And they're like, how would you even? How would you even check on anybody? What would you do? What would you? And I'm like, that's just what you did. You just believed people would be okay, and you left. <laughs> Not yeah, and it was actually it was awesome because you didn't have to like if if someone called your house and you just didn't answer the phone, it was like they just you don't have to talk to this person I, this day, and like it's it's fine. exhausting or, now. Or parents at work, they're constantly on their phone talking to their kids. And it's like, you know what? Back in the day, if I needed my mom, I could call her office and someone could call the funeral home and say, hey, my mom, I need to talk to my mom. I have an emergency. Great. Talk to them. But you don't have to Snapchat your kid all day while you're working. You're working. Like, let's do work. We don't have to do that just because it's accessible doesn't mean we have to. And that's such a different it's such a different change in our society with working and with doing things, this distraction of this stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can't even imagine, like, well, the schools let the kids have them, which just blows my mind. I, I thought, remember you were talking about pagers earlier? Like, if you would bring <laughs> a pager to school and the teacher saw, they would take it for, like, the rest of the year or something crazy. Yeah. And- Someone that I know had a kid that was in high school recently is like, yeah, my kid FaceTime me all the time, like in the middle of class, like the teacher's in the background talking and she's like calling on FaceTime. And I just I'm, I can't even believe that they allow it. I just can't believe it. 
Well, because my mom would have never stormed up in the um, school and threw a fit because someone took my pager. I didn't have a pager, but it, that, you know, where now the parents will storm up in the school and throw an ever loving fit because you took their kid's phone because they couldn't reach out to their kid any minute of the day that they wanted to reach out to them. And it's like, they're in school, just they're in school. Like what part of it is, I, I don't understand. My mind is not there. And maybe cause I am older and, you know, I go to, go to meet some of the kids, parents and they're, you know, 25 46 and I'm over here 45 with a completely different mindset. You know, it's just a different world than some of the parents of the kids that my kids are friends with grew up in completely 20 plus years difference sort of thing, um, which is crazy. Like their friends, parents could be my children. So that happened. I had my daughter when I was in high school and my mom was 38 years old. So when I was oh, sending uh, my daughter to school, everyone thought she was my kid's mom and she was just like an older mom, like, you know, <laughs> and then then yeah. I had my my two younger kids when my daughter was 18. I had my middle child and then now I'm like the older mom. <laughs> it's like this. Yep. It's like so funny. I was like the youngest mom. Now I'm the oldest mom. Well, we always said my ex-husband and I. You know, there is pros to having kids really young and there's pros to having them older. And, you know, it is what it is. You have them when life gives them to you and um, you kind of roll with it. But it's definitely differences with the the parents that are younger and older, not saying one's good or the, you know, better or not. But it's very different, I think, with some of that um, part of it, the cell phones and all of that. I just yeah, because yeah. like I'm like me and my husband are just like you guys aren't getting like they have iPads, whatever. We're you're not getting like an actual phone where you can get social media like forever. Honestly, I'm just at that point that maybe when you start yeah. college, that will be your college present. But <laughs> and, and my husband's like, I'm 44. My husband's 48. Right. And so we're like old school. I'm like, I didn't even get a phone until I was 20 years old. And it was like a flip phone thing. So yeah. we're old school like that. Exactly. You have three times to try and like type anything. Oh my God. Yeah. And just the, the, the going on the internet and trying to, when I finally started using the internet, it'd be like, my mom would get a phone call. It would kick me off the internet. Like, <laughs> um, but I just, I'm just, all the studies you're seeing about, especially girls being on social media and stuff as teenagers, oh, I'm just like, no thanks. Funny. And, I feel like older parents are more are are more on board with that. Like you we survived yeah. and made it to 20 years old without that thing and you can too. So hopefully we went up the hill, crossed. you know, two miles each way, uphill both ways and like it's funny how we you do become your grandparents in a lot of ways oh, and yeah. what you say. You know, the day I got to say because I said so I'm like gosh, that's the most powerful amazing phrase ever and I'm so glad I get to use it. It's awesome. so funny because we had we had a snowstorm yesterday, which I wouldn't even consider. It was it was like three inches. I'm not lying. And the whole world around here shut down with the like school's been delayed an hour every day. And they and they were off and the and the ballet class closed and all this stuff. And we're just like, people are such pussies anymore. Like we used to walk it. We, we never got off school unless it was like a blizzard. No, we just, just don't know how to handle it anymore. Like we've been. 
I think we've had one day since Christmas break and we've been off every other because it's so cold here. They can't stand out at bus stops and stuff. Like, I get it, but gosh, get these kids back in school. Like, I, they they need to be in school coming off the Christmas break and then now being home for the weather and stuff. It's like, oh, get back. Go. School. Yeah, because you know when you're on vacation too, it's like it takes you a minute to get back in the mindset of going back to oh, work. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the same thing with kids. They need to be going all the time. Like that Christmas break is too long, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. it. This one seemed exceptionally longer this year, just where Christmas fell and stuff. I was like, are we done yet? Oh, shoot. We got another week. Like, what's going on? Yeah. Was- I always say like, you know, that the, the Perry Como so- song that's like mom and dad could hardly wait for school to start again. It's like it's like it, it's been happening forever. Right. Like people are just. You're like sick of their it's kids. Relatable now. It's so relatable. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thanks so much for being here today. It was awesome mm-hmm. to meet you. And I think you told everyone some really awesome stuff that they probably never heard before. And hopefully they'll go and follow you on YouTube. Thank you. It was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.